Uh, everybody, this is our Sunday morning live stream. We do this every single Sunday at 8.45, Psst. standard time. And uh, the general format of what we do is we go ahead and we do some Genus Brewing news, talk about new stuff here at the brewery and or things that are going on in the beer world outside of the brewery. Um, that are you know maybe important. We then go into a beer of the week where we break down a style, BJCP guide guideline wise and or otherwise. Sometimes we don't do BJCP stuff. Um, someone says too much sleeves. Dang it! All right, get that up there. <laughs> uh, and then we go into two discussion topics, which I'm really excited about today's discussion topics because it takes a really broad usage from a very scientific start, if that makes sense. Something that's going to help everybody, but that has a fun scientific <laughs> background to it. <laughs> AKA more genetic nerdy stuff, but and that helps you out and that we have uh, practical applications of in the store right now. Yeah. I'm actually really excited for this too, but uh, yeah, it's going to be yeah. super fun before we get into that though. Uh, let's start out with some beer news, specifically some genus news. Uh, and that is that, uh, oh, got that we got a Brett IPA on tap now that has that aged Peter. Um, it's five weeks old right now. Five weeks old? Okay, so pretty young, actually. Um, so, um, yeah, five-week-old Brett IPA on tap and uh, really has created some fun flavors to work with. If, if you guys have never brewed a Brett IPA out there, I highly recommend it. Um, Brettanomyces, uh, I believe this was a Brett blend that we actually pitched into that one. Um, but it can throw some awesome, like funky barnyard but simultaneously some like weird tropical fruit like characteristics to it um this one straight up smells like cranberries um so i have no idea even where that came from but i'm guessing it has to do with the yeast uh combining with some of those hop esters so um that is on tap so come check that out and um also uh we got some new yeast which uh we'll also be kind of talking a little bit more about later um, from uh, Omega Inn, we have their Bonanza and Sundew yeast strains, which are some just barely released strains from Omega. And we're really excited to use those. In fact, I think we might try to squeak out a little side-by-side-by-side by side by side today, right? Yeah, that's the that's idea. The I'm really excited to use them to see how uh, how impactful those yeasts actually are. The Bonanza uh, touted for its extreme banana profile, and the Sundew is supposed to have some red berry, red fruit kind of notes to it. So I'm excited to see how those, uh, how those play out in a side-by-side-by-side. So, uh, yeah, also we got a black IPA uh, video, basically how to um, brew a black IPA and get all of the, the good flavors in there and leaving those excessive amounts of uh, roasty and bitterness behind out. Uh, wait, behind and out. That was redundant. In and out behind. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so we got that video coming up soon. Um, I think we're going to throw together a kit for that one, too. Yeah, um, that's yeah. the idea. Speaking of which, uh, for those of you that uh, probably watched the red video, we do actually finally have that kit on the website. Sorry it took us uh, a day delay to actually get that kit up. Um, but it is now available. Yep, um, and we'll even be working on some graphics for it in the coming week, too. We've got like three pounds of uh, Red X left to uh, <laughs> fill those recipes with. But uh, ho hopefully we'll be getting more in this week. So Yeah, we'll <laughs> get some more in. We'll make it happen. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know. If, if we're delayed uh, by a couple days, it's not a yeah, huge deal. Yeah, if, if we have to delay that uh, shipping for you. No, but it'll get in. We'll do uh, actually have most of that order already put together. So Yep, sounds good. And um, also we got a Porta Growler video. Porta Growler? Filler. Filler. Counter pressure growler filler uh, video we started out and we put it on a portable stand. Put it on portable stand. Uh, so we'll be able to show you some really fun counter pressure growler filling contraption in the near future. Yeah, no, actually that was what, what's the company again? Pig Pegos, right? 
Pegasus. Pegasus. Pe- Pegasus. Uh, but uh, yeah, they sent us a uh, for free too, um, actually, which is crazy because it's a, it's an expensive piece of machinery. Yeah, it's a nice growler um, filler, and it's uh, a yeah counter pressure growler filler. So we put it on this cool little portable stand. We're hoping to kind of share that around to the Spokane brewing community. So yeah, and it's something that's actually pretty timely too. I mean, I wish we could have gotten it put together a little bit sooner, but now we're in you know second shutdown. Um, with COVID and everything like that. And so we're very much in a to-go heavy world when it comes to what we can do to sell beer. So it's really nice to be able to have something that offers a really good to-go option. Yeah, especially with that sexy B-roll I got last weekend. Yeah. <laughs> and, and your My really sexy B-roll. B-roll. No. <laughs> Ryan loved it. Um, I got a note of Christmas stuff. Um, How do, yeah, if you guys have any idea for things that you want us to put up for Christmas stuff, uh, what do you want to see? Do you want to see um, festive sweatshirts that are Genius Brewing brand related? Do you want to see a Christmas kit maybe? Probably a little bit late for that, but uh, I don't know. If there's, you've got any ideas of something you want to see on our website for you to be able to buy for Christmas gifties um, or even in the store, then uh, let us know. We'd love to hear some feedback on that. Need a new year, new beer kit? I don't know. Yeah, uh, we do our low, uh, low-cal IPA in a kit. Low-cal, yeah. Or we could uh, do the seltzer kit. Do, do the opposite. Do like highest, highest uh, calorie, <laughs> calorie possible. Low, lowest alcohol beer. If we can break a thousand calories in like a five percent sessionable beer, uh, that would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Someone says they want to see us franchise genus in North Carolina and <laughs> Meh. Michigan. Is that MI? <laughs> this is Michigan. Um, it sounds like uh, Dirk might be a financier. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> you you want to finance our franchise? Uh, yeah anyway and uh so yeah that is the sort of genus news slash beer news of the week um yeah rest of the country it's just everybody's sort of you know sucking on their own on their own whatever's when it comes to uh trying to get beer out and when it comes to distribution it's not easy right now it's not easy i'm sure people are drinking just as hard but they are yeah they're just uh they're drinking crappier beer so on average. Unfortunately. Well, that's it for our Genus Brewing News this week. Let's go on to our Beer of the Week. Bump, bump, bump. Beer of the Week. Beer. Oh, wait. Uh, I forgot to do the. I, I went up high. It's supposed to go low. Bump, beer. Beer, beer. Yeah, beer, beer. Oh, Next time. We'll get it next it week. Uh, and this week's Beer of the Week is a German Weiss beer, BJCP style 10A. Yes. So Weiss beer or <laughs> the classic, um, well, I shouldn't. Jeffelweizen. Jeffelweizen. Uh, yeah, we call them Hefeweizens here in America. I don't know. We're weird that way. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this is your, your very classic wheat beer, um, Weinstefan. Um, Weiss beer, yeah. Yeah, Weiss beer. That's always kind of the, the, the go-to that everybody thinks of. And uh, this is, you know, as we go into cold weather, it's literally snowing outside right now. <laughs> the um, perfect summer beer. Yeah, the perfect summer beer. Um, these are designed to be sessionable beers. Um, they are, um, just like the name says, they are based on wheat. So generally you're looking at, you know, 50 to 70% of your grains are going to be wheat, simple grain bill. Um, and, uh, and they're actually uh, supposed to be a very sessionable beer. They're supposed to be, um, have a nice light dry body to them. And really what's shining in these beers is going to be the yeast strain. Typically the, the wine stuff and wheat strain um, is going to produce both a nice banana, banana. type character uh, balanced out with so, sort of some clovey phenols in there. Yeah, a little bit of both going on there. Uh, the clove is going to give it a, kind of a bright peppery note too. The banana is going to be a little bit more heavy. Both of them lean into some citrusiness. And the overall body of the beer is light. The acidity is a little bit light. Uh, so it's going to be there to be nice and sessionable but have enough character to keep you sipping and keep you wanting to keep drinking basically yep exactly so um 
Uh, yeah, so otherwise, uh, some random stats on them off the top of my head because I did not make notes. Uh, they yeah. are like 1044 <clears throat> to 1052, I think, OG, um, at least about in there. And then 1010 to 1014 FG. I do remember that one. Um, so, yeah, so you're looking at that 45 um, to 5% range. Yeah, and um, not bone dry, but still on the drier side in terms yeah, of where they can and, finish and that's out. one thing, you know, I think it's really good to note is that uh, it says in the style See more guidelines. <laughs> It says in the style guidelines that uh, these beers actually have a, uh, a light to medium body and, and that same thing for the mouthfeel. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of especially like American breweries I see from, from small microbreweries is that they, we tend to build these beers up, and especially from home brewers, I should say more than anything, uh, they tend to build up a really kind of heavy body on these beers. Yeah. Uh, and that's one thing is that these beers should not have is a heavy body. They should still be a very light, a very kind of uh, on the dry side when it comes to the finish. Yeah, I mean, malt wheat's gonna have a little extra proteins. If you use Pilsner malt as your base yeah. malt, that's gonna have a little extra proteins. And so that will have some puffiness just kind of naturally, um, which is part of why it's not gonna finish bone dry like if it was a base two row. But at the same time, there really shouldn't be a lot of other stuff going on and you should still be doing either a complex mash or a low temperature uh, infusion mash yep so uh let's go right into our hop of the week now and uh i kind of there's actually a lot of fun ones there's uh, a lot of ways so to go i ended up settling on Hul melon uh, which i think is a really really great one especially if we end up using uh one of our fun new yeast varieties i think it just would build even more off of that um and that's a fairly new one it's a cascade daughter and uh, it was actually just came out in 2002, I, th I guess, is when it was released. Or no, 2012. Sorry, not 2002. That's like um, 2002 plus 10. Yeah, 2002 plus 10. Um, so, yeah, really hasn't been around <laughs> for a whole lot of time. Um, but it's known for producing um, kind of really, really juicy, fruity profiles, honeydew melon and strawberry specifically. Um, and so I think that for this style of beer, if you're trying to go push some of that sweetness, push some of that... Uh, that sort of that really nice berry profile. Um, I think I think it'll only build off of this style. Um, so yeah, six to eight percent alphas, um, and we're actually not going to use very much because these beers are eight to fourteen IBUs. Um, so we're talking about uh, like something like. Uh, a half ounce, if that, at bittering. Uh, probably like a third of an ounce closer. Or if you want to get some of that flavor, that character in there, you can throw these in late edition. Yeah. Um, which we'll kind of talk about some back and forth on why you might do that when you get into the yeast, because that's actually going to play a little bit of a role yeah. this time. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, like a third of an ounce at uh, bittering, and then maybe a half ounce, <coughs> maybe three quarters of an ounce. I wouldn't honestly have a total hot bill of like no more than two ounces on these styles of beer. Yeah, and, two uh, ounces would probably be aggressive, even if it yeah, was all back in. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe yeah, no more than really an ounce at the end as, like, a five-minute for if you want to actually pull some of that flavor and aroma out of it. Um, but, yeah, otherwise pretty subdued on the hops. Um, as for our malt of the week, uh, it's... Well, white wheat, right? Big shocker <laughs> here. Uh, white wheat's going to be the probably the best way to start with any um, any Hefeweizen, any wheat beer, American wheat or German wheat uh, beer that you're doing. Uh, and it's really nice because it has all that same weedy flavor, that same bready kind of quality without being a little bit aggressive, like something like torrified wheat could or flaked wheat could. Uh, and it's going to actually still be, since it is malted, it's going to have very accessible sugars that will ferment out really well. So it can help keep this dry. So a good malted white wheat. We usually use Great Western, but something that's, you know, in the German well, world like best malts can work really well too uh, maybe with a little bit more uh flavor than you might want yeah i'll let you finish that while i turn off the fridge oh yeah <laughs> thanks yeah and you know to build off of that too you know peter mentioned torrified wheat i thought about red wheat too 
Uh, and uh, both uh, the red wheat has a higher protein content compared to white wheat, um, and the torrefied wheat um, just doesn't have that modification that's technically unmalted. And I would actually recommend staying away from those for this style. Um, and that's just because those might end up building up uh, too much of that body um, and too much chewiness. You want that to be subtle in there. Uh, one of the, the term that the style guidelines throw out is actually uh, quote unquote puffiness, um, which is a great way to describe what wheat adds to beer. Um, and it's this puffy type mouthfeel, um, but without adding additional sweetness um, and without adding really um, additional like thickness to the beer. Um, if that makes sense for you guys, hopefully that, that does. But uh, <laughs> somebody, we got comments coming in. So um, yeah, so that's white wheat. And like I said before, um, we're talking at least 50% of your grain bill is going to be white wheat. And uh, yeah, up to about 70%. I've even heard of some people doing it 100%. Um, if, you're doing a, if you're doing a brew in a bag, I think you very well could go 100%. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that if you are... That's some great 100% white wheat stuff. There you go. So yeah, Peter's had some 100% ones himself. And um, I think that uh, if you're doing it in a traditional mash tun, you're just definitely going to have to add a bunch of rice holes to try to fluff it up. Um, to avoid having a stuck mash. White wheat, crush, crack, or no? Uh, we do crush all of our white wheat as well. Um, just opening up those grains, uh, making them smaller, and letting those enzymes kind of do their thing. Um, that'll help you with your efficiency. So, um, Yeah, otherwise, uh, the other malt that you're going to use is a nice high-quality Pilsner malt with them in order to build up the rest of your grain bill. So. Or even just T-Row. Pilsner's yeah. more topical, though. Uh, yeah, Pilsner, Pilsner's <laughs> traditional. If you've got a quality two-row, yeah, that'll work just as well, honestly. Um, they are, yeah, they are really remarkably simple beers. So, um, and then lastly, I'm going to throw this back at you now that you just, you know, ran your little uh, laps around the brew. Yeah, sweet, tiny <laughs> little people infant. People saw you, like, going back and Eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus. <laughs> that was a lot to turn off. Um, and that is going to be our yeast because traditionally we would use uh, the vine stuff on yeast strain, right? The vine stuff on yeast strain, which has that classic banana flavor that we all know and love. Also has some phenolic components uh, like clove, like black pepper, um, all those phenols that kind of give a little bit of aggression to the overall profile of the beer. But what Omega Yeast Labs did is they created a yeast that skips the phenols and goes straight to that banana flavor. So this could be really fun in two different ways. I think one to do as a straight Hefeweizen style-ish thing where you just do your base beer and ferment straight with this yeast. Uh, and the other would be to actually blend, either blend yeast or blend beers if you make two different beers, one yeah. that's clove heavy, one that's banana heavy, and then find where you like that sweet spot to be in the middle. Yeah, so this actually is really exciting for me because I personally... I, I enjoy the, the level of banana, but the clove, uh, just like um, I think Omega actually said that too in a video that they put out recently about those two strains, the clove can often overwhelm the beers. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's such a pungent, strong um, aroma and flavor that it can, it can basically mask out and overwhelm any other flavors in there. So I honestly would say with this bonanza, um, once we put a batch or two, you know, and have an idea of what it's going to do, I think blending that with the traditional Hefeweizen strain could be um, really fun. Yeah, way the mindset, which which would be Go One from uh, uh, Imperial Yeast or the Thirty Sixty Eight from Y Yeast or Stefan. White Labs. I don't remember. That uh, White Labs, something in the Six Hundred world. Something in the Six Hundred world from White it's Labs. It's been so long since I've ordered White Labs. WBO Six from Fermentus. Yeah, WBO6 from Fermentus. Uh, Jesus. Uh, so is that Munich in Lalamond? I don't 
don't remember. How many more yeast strains? Uh, <laughs> companies many, do you want us to try to like, rattle yeast? off? Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, I feel like blending those, maybe uh, pitching something like that new Bonanza strain from Omega and letting it go for about two-ish days and then actually pitching uh, the Vine Stefan strain and just letting it finish up so you have just a hint of that clove in tiny there. Tiny bit of clove. Tiny, tiny bit, um, but really letting that banana dominate. Um, so yeah, so this is... Or if you've got the fun. fermenter space doing two beers side by side, and which I think them, is yeah. I think is an underrated skill in the brew world, actually making beers for specific flavors and then blending back to the flavor that you want. Very, very common in the barrel age program world. Um, very, very common in the sour world for whatever reason in regular beers. Uh, it's really only common in England. And, uh, and not even so anymore. Thank you, Ton. Uh, it is WLP 300. 300. The White Labs. Yeah, 600 we were divided totally by spot on. two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, All right, so that's our yeast of the week. It's Bonanza. Bonanza. And, Bonanza. And the Vine Stefan, too. So. The word you have to spell is banana. Yeah. Name that show. If you can name that show, I'll give you five high fives. Five. That is five high fives. Uh, as to finish out our and beer of the week uh, with our water profile, you are actually shooting for a really soft profile here. Yeah, um, soft profile, but leaning a little bit more towards the chlorides and with some sodium too. We talk about this a lot with traditional traditional German styles. Uh, you know, although they might be soft and some might be harder than others, uh, all kind of across the board, most German styles have a little bit more sodium and chloride than most other places in the yeah. world. Yeah, they sure do. So I threw down a two to one ratio on the chloride to, the, to sulfate. Um, I think you could probably even go higher with that if you wanted to. Um, I don't see, you know, a three to one, even even four to one hurting anything. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I threw out the numbers I threw out real fast here um, are going to be um, a cal calcium ions of right around 80, just enough to get a good mash conversion. Um, about 15 ppm of of uh, magnesium, 20 ppm of dissolved chlorides, 10 ppm is all of dissolved sulfate, so pretty soft there. About 20 ppm of of uh, sodium and then only about 80 or so ppm of total hardness and bicarbonate so um, michael russell i owe you five high fives and a nickel <laughs> so uh and a nickel <laughs> yeah that's what i said oh okay. anyone can guess the show five high fives and a nickel <laughs> sounds good you're gonna have to mail that to him i think also i have the uh the doing the most jingle stuck in my head right now yeah. we're, on, we're on, on a jingle train doing the most as a jingle before theirs too oh, jesus <laughs> and uh Fake yeah creation so fermentation and creation doing the most are you done yet no so not quite as soft are we gonna get through this yet <laughs> as i'm talking about the water as as the as like a pilsner profile right um so pilsner profile is like super super soft um but definitely um definitely on that soft side so Biggest thing, though, I guess, would be uh, take away your chloride to sulfate ratio. Make sure your chlorides are up and get a little bit of sodium in there. So. Yeah. Um, one more thing on the yeast before we completely uh, back off from that, because I've seen a couple comments on like under pitching, and I know that's a common thing that you do in, uh, or a lot of people, I usually never recommend under pitching or trying to stretch that yeast in any ways. I like to go with the natural flavor of the yeast and then kind of manipulate uh, in other ways. Um, but a lot of people will under pitch Hefeweizen yeast, will under pitch Belgian yeasts in general to White try strains. to, yeah, to try to get an extra flavor off of it. I think that's inconsistent, which is why I don't like it. I prefer consistency over everything else with my brewing. Um, and one of the things that's fun about these specific strains is a lot of times uh, manipulating things like temperature and the stress of the yeast to gain certain flavors off your yeast strains was the only way that people could select for banana or clove flavor, for example, with the Fire and Stefan uh, wheat strain. However, with uh, something like Bonanza, we're just kind of like, boom, here's your flavor that you want. Just go ahead and pitch normally, 
create a proper beer like you want to, and then go ahead and blend back or do whatever you need to do to kind of manipulate that flavor in yeah, other ways. Totally. No, I, uh, I mean, if I had the, the time, I would probably be just because of like hitting that profile, I would probably actually do like a four gallon batch and then a one gallon batch yeah. and then back blend those. Um, to go four gallons with the Bonanza and one gallon with the with the traditional Vine Stefan strain, um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's work, but you can I'm sure you can create just a really spot on profile by doing something like that. Yeah, I think that's so. a more fun, more funner way more to fun. more funner. Okay, well let's go into our first discussion topic, uh, and uh, like we've been doing lately, we are going to nerd out on you, and that is going to be talking about uh, deleting genes in yeast strains. Yeah, uh, and this goes into a broader topic of basically genetically modifying yeast in general or genetically selecting for certain traits in yeast. Uh, this isn't new. This is something that's been done a lot um, by multiple yeast labs, some by uh, wild inoculation or wild yeast capturing, um, and some by basically hybridization or cultivating yeast in the same uh, vessel with multiple yeast strains, some wild, some not. Uh, making a little uh, primordial soup of yeast to share <laughs> share genetic materials and all that. Um, but uh, let's start with kind of there's two different methods for selecting for or against yeast traits. Uh, the first is hybridiza hybridization, and the second is going to be me mechanical manipulation, which we'll focus a little bit more in uh, for the majority of this topic. So hybridization is the very traditional way of going about things. We've been, you know, doing this since Mendel, right? Yeah, and a little his, Mendelian and selection. In his peas, yeah. So hybridizing, you know, hybridizing plants, um, hybridizing uh, dogs is, I guess, another great example. That's more, um, uh, not, not Euclidean, eugenics. So, Hybrid, so, hybridizing dog is more like eugenic selection. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, the bottom line is that this is done throughout um, generations and generations of breeding trying to select for the traits that you want um, and then discarding the traits that you don't want. And, you know, some of the downsides to this process are that, yes, it is a very, very slow, time-consuming process. Um, you have a lot of variation in the results that you're getting. Um, you, more times than not, you don't get the results you want. But also, um, you sort of, because you're sort of rolling the dice and seeing what comes up, um, a lot of times you can also have the benefit of something popping up that you didn't expect that actually works out for the benefit um, when it comes to getting those new flavors. So, so. there always is when, whenever you're basically having this uh, little genetic pool of yeasts floating around and doing, uh, doing their, their business, they're, they're, doing, they're doing sex. They're doing yeast, it's asexual, yes. but still, they're doing yeast asexuals. Then um, there is always a random chance of getting something unexpected that you really enjoy out of it, and that's how actually a lot of new yeast strains that we have today have kind of come about. Um, not necessarily on purpose, but a lot of the breweries historically, especially American breweries that have uh, proprietary uh, yeast strains right now, they had wild yeast uh, interacting with yeasts that are traditional over many, many, many years, and then they were able to select you know, against batches that sucked and four batches that they liked, and so they ended up with their own house strain that's kind of a genetic. Yeah, mix of the two. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like a lot of the yeast strains that we even have to work with these days literally just came from breweries around the world and, yeah. and essentially the environment that those yeasts were in. Um, you had these slow mutations that would happen uh, between with the yeast. And so each one sort of developed into, you know, I'm, I'm sure the brewers selected for them too. Don't yeah, get me yeah, wrong. exactly. Well, it's um, kind of like also, a half selection, like a, yeah. Hey, this batch sucked. Maybe we should just go back to the yeah. old yeast that we had. <laughs> hey man, don't use that spoon on the left wall. That one sucks. Use the one on the right wall over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, don't throw your wood into that one. Throw my wood into that one. <laughs> 
Uh, now we're getting weird with yeast. Yep, things just got awkward. Now. You know, when we're talking about genetic material, I feel like it's just natural we go to that that realm. Uh, so, oh God. But anyways, that, that was how yeast was selected for uh, you know over time, and a lot of yeast that we have, especially like uh, Americanized lager strains, are lager yeasts that came over from Germany. Uh, you know, during the great brewery revolutions yep. that we had pre 1900s, and uh, they just interacted with wild yeast because there's no perfect way to store yeast back then. Yeah, and uh, we didn't they, have lager yeast here. Yeah, and they just they they mold it. Even today's lager yeast in like old world German breweries have hybridized over the last hundreds of years. And so that's why we kind of don't have perfect lager and ale yeasts anymore. They're yep. all this mixed genetic mess. Yep. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that's the whole thing that uh, before we even realized what was happening, um, yeah, five, five, six years ago when people were starting to ferment lagers warm and going, well, that's weird, this is still super clean. Um, yeah, so before we even kind of had that, <laughs> that genetic code to point out and say, ah, aha, that's because it doesn't have that trait. We got um, a couple, couple good comments we got to comment on really quick. Okay. One I want to comment on because it's going to get us beer, and that's uh, Ethan's beer review. It says he's brewing a 15-barrel batch of NEPA with that sundew, uh, sundew yeast, which I'm excited for. He says he'll send us some. Nice. So I'm mentioning that <laughs> so that while you're still on, I can call you out on it and make sure you send us some. 15-barrel batch. Nice. Yeah. Where's he at? Uh, I don't know. Ethan's beer reviews. Ethan's beer, your beer reviews. Homebrew for Life says, is it humanly possible to drink a beer with a mask on without having to butt chug it? Um, I'm down for both ways. I think you can if you really go slowly through the filtration mechanism of the mask. Depends on the mask. Yeah, depends on the mask. The mask that most people wear, probably super easy. Probably just pour right through. <laughs> and on whether or not Tim find the beer. <laughs> That's true. Just a proteinous mess. <laughs> Anyways, going on. being blasted in the face. <laughs> so we've talked about hybridization, which is this, uh, you know, this mixed gene pool um, where you can add certain yeast with certain uh, properties um, to try to, you know, select for or against certain traits. But let's also talk about mechanical mechanical manipulation, which has become very, very popular since. Uh, Just the last few years. Yeah, I mean, in, in yeast specifically the last few years, but I want to say we, we really started doing this research in like the mid-1990s, maybe early 2000s. When did we clone that sheep? Is that 1990s? 96? No, no, it was before that. I just spilled tea all over myself. So we've been messing with genetics <sighs> for a while. But uh, it recently we've gotten good at it, especially when it comes to yeast. And so it's very, very accessible. Uh, and let's talk about mechanical manipulation specifically for yeasts that we have right now, which are the sundew and the bonanza and how that came to be and uh, what's cool about it and what that means for the future. Yeah. So way back in the days when I was actually trying to educate myself, um, that was so dumb of me. <laughs> no, it was, it's actually, this is really cool because, um, yeah, I went, went to Eastern for biology, and we uh, we had this brand new thing called the CRISPR-Cas pathway that came out, and it has to do with gene editing. And what what they found is that uh, in certain bacteria, there were um, these pathways and these proteins that could actually go into a piece of DNA, um, and then actually cut out specific parts of that DNA. Um, that and then you could use that to either put into something else or just take or or remove entirely um, from another organism. And uh, what made this kind of mind blowing is that uh, the original thing that we learned about was 
was, whoa, we could actually find like certain genes that cause diseases in humans and potentially remove those. Um, but now here we are four or five years later and making and, even better use out of it. And some brewers got a hold of it. We're not saving people, but we are making better beer here. <laughs> yeah, right. And some brewers got to get a hold of it. And they're like, wait, what? So we don't have to have clove in our beer? Yeah. So specifically what we're talking about here is the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And that's probably the simplest uh, and most basic form of the uh, any of the CRISPR-Cas uh, gene editing tools that we have because it can specifically target a certain spot on the DNA sequence. Um, using what's called guide RNA. That guide RNA basically finds the genetic code that uh, that codes for right before where you want to cut and right after where you want to cut, and it attaches a protein called the Cas9 protein, and that is just a clean slice in that area, and then it makes the cell freak out and go like, hey, I've got to fill in this uh, genetic material. So it fills it in with random stuff, and uh, that could code for nothing, probably usually codes for nothing, but every once in a while it might code for something. Um, and so you do this over and over and over again until you get a product that you want um, that's viable, sustainable, and uh, all of a sudden you have a yeast that has all the same flavors that it had before, but without, specifically in this case, phenol-producing uh, uh, proteins. So uh, yeah, so this is such a cool thing to do. Um, this has so many implications, and it's and it sounds like um, we've got it down now too. Like it's actually a pretty simple thing to do, um, pretty uh, with a with a fairly basic lab setup. And uh, so yeah, I I think that having seeing this in the at least the two strains that uh, Omega has produced is only going to open the door for a lot more more uh, to come, right? Right. Um, and so I think we're going to be seeing all kinds of genes being added, being deleted. Um, and yeast, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll make a, a Franken yeast that literally just throws all the flavors. Every flavor. Or something that's too, super, super neutral, too. We might end up with, like, a turbo yeast that's, like, so it, the best yeah. seltzer yeast ever. Yeah, so you could do that to where you could basically, uh, yeah, take out all of the flavor products um, and that yeast produce, which I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing because then it yeah. – Tastes like nothing. That would probably take several trials, though, because you have to delete certain things and then also allow for the yeast natural enough growth time to encode something that actually means something in the interim. Yeah, because this if you, is... If you cut out too much, then it's not going to... Yeah, because you got to make sure that, that you actually have the exact thing that you're looking for. So this does still take some effort and some time. 106 likes for Logan to butt chug. That's, for, that's true. Um, <laughs> definitely will happen. Clear uh, glow in the dark. So Two glow in the dark beers. I, I know. I thought, yeah, there's a lot of people talking about glow in the dark Farts beers. Great protein. Um, there, who was it that, uh, uh, I know glow in the dark yeast has been, uh, made already in somewhere in Europe, not Germany, but like Russia, somewhere German adjacent. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so let's, let's talk about what all this entails. First of all, it entails knowing the G the DNA sequence that codes for a uh, certain production of, uh, you know, in this case, a certain f like phenol production. Um, and, uh, we're specifically focusing on four vinyl guaiacol, which is, uh, the, the clove phenol, yep. um, but I don't know specifically does this, if this gene codes for only the production of 4-vinyl guaiacol or if it is a certain part of the substrate that um, codes for phenol production in general, and that's just the most dominant one. Um, could be a combination of the two. It could be very, very specific. I haven't really looked into it. But uh, the reason that this is important for these is because you have very, very flavorful yeast that we're working with. Um, in the Bonanza, the case is that's the Feinstefan yeast strain. But we're able to cut out that 4-vinyl guaiacol production. Um, and maybe some other phenol productions that are very dominant in the flavor. And so by removing those, we're kind of able to uncover the other flavors um, that, uh, that, you know, are, 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 are yummy flavors. Yeah, which is where Nailed the uh, the sundew yeast comes from. It's, it's, it is sundew, right? The well, both sundew and bonanza, yeah. So sundew yeah. is going to be like the, 
Belgian. Yeah. So yeah. So we've also done that same thing, just like we talked about in Bonanza. Um, so the other new yeast is called Sundew, um, and that one um, they actually say that it's got a really nice uh, berry melon um, profile to it. Um, and that one we can't couldn't quite figure out exactly what like the base strain was that they they used for it, but we figured yeah. some Belgian strain, probably an Abbey strain, and um, and by removing that uh, that clove. Uh, uh, gene that produce or the gene that produces the clove flavor. There we go. That's, yeah. what, that's how I should say the that. phenolic producing gene. Um, you actually let all those like really melony berry type flavors come to the surface um, that would normally be masked by that strong clove uh, production. Um, so yeah, so it's it's just it's just crazy. It's a game changer, is what it is, really. Yeah, and this is also cool, kind of leading back into what we talked about with when we talked about our hop of the week being a little bit more of a flavorful hop using that whole melon, which has some subtle flavors. If you had heavy clove production from the yeast, then a lot of that would easily get masked. But if you're making a hefeweizen, and you want some of that same balance, some of the the bitter side of the flavor realm to balance out. Uh, um, you know, the sweeter banana realm. You can do that with hops now because the clove has been taken away. And so something like a uh, melon where you can uh, get a little bit of extra bitterness off of it, some grassiness, and then also those subtle flavors, you can actually let the flavor of the hop shine as well just because you don't have that aggressive underlying flavor. Oh, exactly, yeah. So, you, yeah, it's just it's crazy what you can do with things, yeah. And I think this also means for... I think we're going to see a lot more Belgian IPAs coming out too as a result too. Yeah. Because that, that same thing, you know, we talked... Uh, a couple weeks back now, I think about Belgian IPAs and trying to find the right hop varieties for them that are going to go with the yeast. Cause yeah, those, and trying to figure are... out how to underplay the yeast a little bit exactly. so you're not pre- you know, producing a big yeah, extra fennel so bomb. Yeah, so I feel like this this might end up, you know, I feel like I, w- I wouldn't be surprised in a year if we see Belgian IPAs making a big surgence, uh, not necessarily resurgence, but a, a big surge in popularity. Um, someone asked us, what do we have against White Labs, uh, their, um, their preference for yeast? Uh, it's not necessarily that we have against anything that they produce or their yeast strains in particular, uh, but I believe uh, from our experience, so we started out with using White Labs and Y-Yeast a while ago when we opened up as a homebrew supply store, and just as being a customer-facing entity, they didn't do a very good job, at least at that time. That was back when they were still in those vials before they went to Pure Pitch, um, and since they've, they've, they've always kind of seemed a little bit late to the game in the homebrew sense. In the commercial sense, they've done a lot of things that we love, and so we buy their enzymes, we buy their nutrients, all that. But when it comes to the homebrew pitchable packets, uh, they've been a little bit worse at being customer facing, a little bit worse in terms of uh, you know communicating with us and being able to help us out, get us the right yeast strains, come up with new stuff. You know, yeah. Uh, that one we got two other companies that can like ship us yeast in like twelve hours. Yeah, exactly. Um, that are like <laughs> they're also in California, so we don't use them very much because you know shipping really cold yeast from California to here is a little bit harder than shipping yeast from Oregon to here. And so they still—it's nothing against them specifically. We just have better options, and we've gone to Imperial and Omega recently because they are very, very focused to that creative kind of homebrewer vibe yeah and so imperial and omega i think to to us you know even though they might not have the selection that white east and white labs have omega actually does they've they've been omega's producing a crazy selection but they're very very focused on changing the yeast game not necessarily just producing yeast that are already made yeah very much so um so yeah that's that's just why so they're they're funnerer there's yeah there's nothing wrong with white labs by all means um if you have fresh i think that's the other key yeah um fresh white labs um, in your area, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. Otherwise, Omega is based out of um, the Midwest, so I know a lot of you guys will probably be using them. At least and, still uh, shipping from cold weather to cold yeah. weather in this time, which is as, nice. As for Imperial, I have actually picked up several orders 
um, on my way home because my parents live down in, in Portland, Oregon. and That is drivable from here. Yeah, it is It is like a five-minute detour for yeah. me to be like, hey, I'm going to save us 20 bucks in shipping this week. So, um, yeah, that's probably the biggest thing um, with uh, Imperial there too. So Yeah. Um, yeah, anyway, so that's, that's that question. And um, let's uh, finish up why gene selection is awesome and changing the yeast world. Yeah, what, what, have we missed anything? I don't think so. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I wrote in biology pickup line. Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, hey, hey, baby. You're one, you're one tall genetic sequence. I wish I was DNA helicase so I could unzip your genes. Uh, Tell uh, me how many of you were turned on by that. How many numbers did I just get on a scale of one to all of them? All right, let's go on to some other uh, applications that might happen in the near future and <laughs> other ways we might be able to uh, see things. Somebody shut down this mRNA. <laughs> uh. Uh, we might be able to see some stuff get manipulated in the future. Um, this is complete speculation. I don't know if it's been done or is being worked on being done. Uh, but one of the things that comes to my mind is just deletion of the uh, gene that produces uh, STA1 or the STA1 <laughs> gene. Asshole Pigwood slowly raises his hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, sorry. What were you saying? <laughs> Completely threw me off there. <laughs> Other applications. Where where might we see this uh, gene modification go in use in the future? Um, I definitely think with the STA uh, one gene. Uh, that's uh, yeah, that one. <laughs> that's the one that we talked about again. I think a couple weeks ago with uh, with yeah, that's that's the one that produces uh, amylase enzyme that'll basically super attenuate your beers. Um, I feel like deleting that will open up a few strains um, to people that uh, might be con have concern about them uh, creating bottle bombs. Get some so. saisons that are thick with three C's. Yeah, thick. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I feel like that's another one. Um, again, yeah, we could see super yeast being made that have all, everything deleted. We could have yeah. a Franken yeast that has everything added to it. What I see this leading into is basically fast tracking our way through getting new yeasts. Yeah. Where before it was kind of like random, like, hey, we found this new yeast, or hey, we've been like blending these yeasts for forever, and now we have this new yeast. This yeah. is kind of a fast track to be like, hey, can we create this flavor? Like, mm -hmm. what else can we do? And so yeah. it's kind of like, I think we're gonna see that curve where we saw with hops for a while, where hops were like, you know, flavors of hops were like this, yeah. for a while and then all of a sudden we figured out you know how to you know organize plots and breed in a certain way sure. that you selected for a certain uh, you know oil production and all of a sudden we were like yeah. you know hops and weed became like crazy same with weed honestly yeah. i think there might be a little backlash too because by all definitions this is gmo too yeah um so there might be some people that backlash on that but uh yeah i mean without getting into too much politics for those of you that are educated out there um, GMO is not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's honestly what we've been doing for millennia. Um, like Peter said, we're just, we're able now that we have the science, now that we have the know-how, we're able to fast track those mechanisms. There is safe so, GMO. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think there is a non-safe GMO. It's, there was at some point. I mean, there, there, there are pathways where GMOs are, ge you know, generally negative, uh, but I mean, that's these, this day in my mind, that's few and far between. So let's, you know, not go too into that yeah. in case there's people that are like, I'm very anti-GMO. So yeah, but yeah, that is one thing to know. Nothing against um, anybody that has different opinions. Yeah. Yeast by nature is GMO. Like somebody said earlier to, um, uh, 
the wheat that we use or the the barley yeah. that we use is, Every, is all every, GMO. Everything corn in the world right now is is GMO. <laughs> Even if it says non-GMO, it's GMO corn. Yeah, so like corn, uh, the corn doesn't exist naturally the way we eat. Corn. Yeah, right. Um, all right. So, anyways, yeah, that sums up that topic. Uh, and let's go on to our second topic now, uh, and that is better beer through simpler recipes. And this is a topic that hits home a little bit with us because of how many people we see come through here. Uh, obviously, we sell to new homebrewers and we teach new homebrewers a lot. And so uh, we've been doing this for, you know, uh, eight, almost nine years now. And so it's something that we've gotten a lot better at in, you know, the last four or five years. And we've kind of seen some trends that we both fell into at some point as well uh, that really inhibit people from becoming better brewers soon. I almost feel like we need to like get a two by four and screw it in the wall and be like the, and have it be the complicated <laughs> recipe board. And we can just go bang <laughs> our heads every time we get one that comes in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple of different reasons to uh, um, to do simple recipes. Uh, I think the the best way to to learn and to make good beer early is the Kiss method. Keep it simple, dumbass. Yeah. And uh, and so by breaking down your recipes to the simplest possible form, you kind of get two main benefits. And the first is as a brewer, it's really hard uh, to learn what you like and don't like in a recipe, um, ingredients wise or whatever, temperature wise, whatever the variables are the more variables you have. And so the more complicated your recipe, the, the harder it is to learn what you're making. Exactly, so something that we push here is methodology over and over and over again uh, from, you know, and this even goes from the person that's brewing their first batch of beer to um, somebody that is well-seasoned home brewer, um, and, but it still comes down. It's the way to make your best beer is to have the best methods going into it. Yeah. Um, and by, by shifting your focus from building up a recipe to, to producing the best methods um, and most consistent methods too, for that matter, um, we believe that that has a much bigger impact. So by not focusing on adding this and that and the other thing to your recipe and just saying, well, that's, that'll make a beer. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's only a few ingredients, but yeah, it'll still make a beer. Um, that actually allows you to um, get a lot more out of the process and, and ultimately learn those ingredients in, in a, in in a, a much, better way. Yeah, in a much better I, way. I am dead set that any of the brewers here can make a better two malt stout than 80% of the brewers out there. Yeah. <laughs> using whatever, if they're using whatever, you know, ingredients possible. With two malts, I'm sure that we can make a better stout. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that comes down to processing. That comes down to actually knowing how to manipulate your ingredients in a way that works for you. Um, and so we see a lot of new brewers kind of fall into that trap of wanting to have the best recipe possible right in the, in the foreground, right in the front. And that best recipe, um, it, it can be good to have the exact best recipe, but at the same time, if you start out with that best recipe and then for whatever reason, your beer doesn't quite turn out, you're stuck in a spot where you don't really know what to manipulate. Yeah. And as a side note, I always tell everyone, um, you know, it's just like cooking food, right? Uh, have a reason why you're putting each ingredient in there. Um, if you don't, if you don't know exactly what you're trying to get out of an out of an ingredient in the beer, don't put it in there. <laughs> like there's exactly yeah. So so ask yourself um, whenever you're looking at an online recipe that's already built by someone, or if you're building your own, um, ask yourself with each ingredient you add why am I adding this? You know, what am I trying to get out of this ingredient? And I think um, by doing that, you're going to find that a lot of ingredients that you might add just because, oh, well, 
that's just an ingredient that you add to this kind of beer. I looked at three um, or four recipes yeah, and I saw this ingredient. Yeah, in all you're those gonna, recipes, you're gonna find so, that that yeah. ingredient isn't necessary. Yeah, um, and I, this is coming from an ingredient lover. Like I, we have a crazy selection of ingredients, like malts, hops, yeast, way more than we need as a Humber supply store. And that comes from the fact that I love ingredients. But I learned ingredients very, very quickly from a from an early stage in brewing because really early on, probably within my first ten batches, I was doing batches just to test certain ingredients. So I wasn't doing batches to make the best possible beer or the, the best possible recipe, but I was doing batches to learn new ingredients. Like the, the learning process of what was, what was fun for me. And when I got down to the point where my brewing style was quality, I knew my processes were good. Then every beer, no matter what it was, whether or not it came out how I wanted it to come out, every beer was good. And so I was, I was more confident to play around with that experimentation. Yeah, I, had, I personally went on a kick for probably a good year or so where just about every other beer that I brewed, probably even two out of three beers I brewed, um, were smashes. Yeah. Um, it, would be, it would be either two-row or Maris Otter um, with some random new hop variety because for a while there, they were just popping out like, yeah, like bunny rabbits. Yeah, there's, there's so many new hops and so many new malts coming out yeah, all the was, time. It, it was crazy. Yeah, it was like, oh, my God, there's 20 new hops that, that came out this year, and I have to try them all. I know. Um, and that's Breach just came out with two new malts last week that we have access to. So <laughs> yeah. guess and how many new malts we're getting in this week. Yeah. And that's the best way to learn a hop variety, I think, is a good example, is um, in uh, what's called a smash. It's a single malt and single hop beer. Um, and, yes, yeah, some... Uh, you, it can be just a pale malt. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I've done plenty of smashes, but usually it's slightly more flavorful uh, base malt. Um, and then uh, just a single hop varietal. Um, if it's one that is designed for IPAs, I usually recommend about a half pound in, in a five-gallon batch. Yeah. Um, loading it up again on the late end. Back end, um, save yeah. a little for dry hop. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you might add one ounce for bittering and uh, and then, yeah, really load it up, add basically the rest that, that flame out whirlpool and then, you know, half a dry hop. Um, but uh, and then if it is more of a noble hop, um, something that might be a lower alpha is that that is a little more subtle in the flavor profile um, that I usually recommend adding about four ounces or so. So you still get that flavor, um, but without getting, you know, too much weirdness. I know I know I personally have screwed up by trying to do those like an IPA hop and adding a half pound yeah. and you end up with just like this kind of weird grass bomb. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yep, no, that's those don't work as IPAs. Yeah. Most triploids don't use those as a single hop. Well, I mean you do, but use them in the four yeah. ounce range. Uh, and, and the, again, they might not be the most complicated beer, but they have such distinct flavor profiles when you do it that way. Um, I think it just, it makes a world of difference in just how you learn and how you're educating yourself because then you have the perfect, um, sort of a concept in your mind of, oh, I know exactly what this hop variety tastes like for this year. You know, exactly. That's the, yeah, that's yeah. the caveat, right? Because <laughs> yeah. next year hops going to change every single year, um, but they'll be in the same flavor world. And then uh, um, the the other thing about that is you're getting down your processes. Like if you're making consistent beer, doing the simplest possible recipes, these yeah. smash recipes, then you know your processes are good. Which kind of brings us into the topic number two for why doing a simple recipe is good. Complex recipes, recipes with a lot of flavors, a lot of ingredients thrown at them, they mask imperfections. Yeah, so um, when you start adding these big flavors um, and lots of different hop, or lots of different hops, lots of different malts, um, they can mask imperfections to a point. Um, but a lot of times, those imperfections will still come through. Yeah. Um, and and what that does by having a really overly complicated recipe is it makes it that much harder to try to find where that imperfection is coming from. Yeah, so if you just in general are 
kind of making shitty beer. That happens. Shifty, shifty beer. Shifty beer. If you're making bad beer, if you have really complicated recipes or recipes with a lot of flavors, it's really hard to tell that you're making bad beer. Yeah. And so um, there's a little bit of kind of like a hard, uh, a hard talk that we got to have, guys. We got to have this hard talk. Uh, but making. All right. <laughs> oh, that that different talk. He's been hard the whole time. <laughs> but uh, uh, this. Uh, 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 making simple recipes or making recipes that really tear down, um, the, you know, the walls of all the flavors that you're trying to come at, uh, it really opens up the, you know, the door to you seeing where your brewing is at. And so by making simple recipes, you're also kind of putting a, you know, a microscope on your own brewing processes and making sure that you're actually making beer the way you need to make beer in the first yep. place. Yeah. I know by doing those smashes that actually not only the hops, um, but, uh, actually that, really opened up my the door for water chemistry to me yeah because by doing those those simple beers i noticed you know a certain kind of commonality in i guess the mouthfeel and water water profile of my beer when you made and, beers and at your I, house versus when you made beers at the shop exactly yeah and exactly yeah. that too and i noticed yeah and and that was kind of my my intro to to messing with water chem and then actually seeing just a complete night and day difference between the way those beers tasted right um when i started doing that it was like holy crap this this is a thing i should probably keep doing this thanks frazzle uh, penguin for the super chat we really appreciate that um and uh yeah i'd love it if you were able to drive down and try some of our beer because we do a really good job yeah uh, so and then on top of you know doing you know hops and 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 paying attention to methodologies like water chemistry um you know i think uh, i saw you got a good example of of even the dark beers and how you're adding yeah. malts to beer right yeah, so let's give an example. Let's let's talk about. Uh, let's say you're trying to make a stout, and so let's let's give an example of doing a two malt stout or maybe a three malt stout to kind of like give you a little bit of layers of dimension. Yeah, I think this is a really good starting point for a lot of brewers to kind of realize that methodology is more important than recipe. Yeah, the Guinness clones, right? Yeah, the, the Guinness clones are super simple. They're like they're not that uh, difficult. Yeah, people people want to add so much to uh, trying to clone Guinness, but um, the reality is. Is there's what like four or five ingredients total in a in a Guinness? And yeah, in true salad. Guinness, it's really not that hard. It's it's <laughs> roasted barley. Yep. It's base malt. A lot of times they do flaked barley as well. So flaked yep. barley, roasted barley, and and uh, uh, base malt. And base malt. That's yeah. it. That's that's literally it for a Guinness. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people are like, there's no crystal malt. <laughs> definitely no crystal malt. <laughs> there's 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 not multiple different types of you know. When I see a Guinness clone, when malt. I see people that come in with recipes that say Guinness clone on the top, and I see like C seventy five in there, I. <laughs> I don't say anything, but I shake my head inside my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So dry stout is, is a really simple thing. And I think most people just try to way overcomplicate that. Um, and then it's either Fuggle or East Kent Golding. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, and it's typically just one edition of just, those. Yeah, exactly. Just one <laughs> it's, hop. It's, it's one bittering edition too. So it's a great example of a style that you can work on to try to make sure that your processes are good and, uh, and to really understand the ingredients that are at play. Um, so Guinness should finish extremely dry. That has to do with mash temperature. Um, also has to do with fermentation a little bit. So making sure yep. you've got healthy active yeast, um, mash temperature is low. Uh, you, you can work on your processes to try to nail down a Guinness clone. Uh, and it's a very, very simple recipe, but let's say you wanted to take that and do like a classic American stout. Maybe you do something a little bit bigger and you try to experiment with different malts to get that flavor that American stouts have. Yeah, and that one's just going to have a slightly different hop profile and uh, generally uh, less of that roasty astringency, Yeah, I guess. is, is So <clears> you're <throat> kind of substituting that roasty astringency uh, for uh, a little bit uh, more bitterness, I would say, um, if anything else. And so, yeah, you might, instead of adding the one hop addition of 
of East Kent Golding, you might have two hop editions of like something like Chinook yeah. um, in there. And then uh, you might sub out the roasted barley for um, either like a chocolate malt or a debittered carafa malt. Like, yeah, carafa uh, to, to two, get, carafa three, something like that. To get your color and, and really... That's it too. Yeah. There's, or if you wanted to, if you wanted to play with like you know more depth of flavor, still keep it that two to three malt range, uh, and you can do instead of base two, or you can do like Halcyon or like a yeah. Pearl Malt or Golden Promise or something like that. Like play with flavors in that realm and understand your base flavors before trying to add some stuff. Diamond to it. Rose says Black Prince. See there you go. Another exactly. One. Midnight Wheat. Um, so if you wanted to play with a third malt in an American style, something bigger, uh, where would you start with your experimentation at? Um, I would probably start with some of your heavier base malts. Yeah. Um, I would start with, uh, you know, like we've got our kind of Northwest pale ale malts, our Munich malts and our Vienna malts. Yeah. So um, a little bit of Munich malts in there. Vienna. Yeah. I would, I would just go straight probably for the Munich malt in there. Um, and yeah, and just basically sub out part of my base, my malt. base malt for say three pounds of Munich. If I want to build up that body more, then you've got some um, middle to it, right? Yeah. You got some middle, um, or you could go, um, in that sort of other weird kind of high color, those, 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 uh, those kind of biscuit Kara adjacent malts, yeah. um, in there. Um, but again, I don't even think that those are necessary, especially when you're, when you're learning how to do it. I think those might add a dimension, but unless you're already familiar with those malts, right. um, you're not going to know what dimension they're adding. And um, so our, ch our, our challenge, I think, to you would be, our challenge would be to try to make some of these styles, in either an American stout or like, you know, a style that you would assume should be really complex, but try to make them really good with a two malt or maybe three malt recipe. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And I think <clears throat> it, it can be done and it's, it can be done all the time and, and yet people don't do it. Uh, and I guess that's the most kind of frustrating thing as someone that's trying to educate people and saying, no, 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 just it's, it's okay. Like you don't have to have yeah, all these exactly. things and they're going, but I do, but I, I need do crystal have malt and honey malt and an aromatic <laughs> oh, yeah. malt. Yeah. And honey malt. like, do you know what any of these are actually doing in your beer? Like <laughs> you've got a very muddled flavor in your final product. And uh, carapils. Yeah, carapils. Carapils and everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> love oh, it. I struck a note there. Yeah. Love <laughs> it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but you've got yeah you you have a muddle you have a a big flavor in your final product but that big flavor doesn't necessarily mean a good flavor if you had a simple recipe with you know for me I, I think I could make it with like Halcyon maybe some Munich and then like Carafa too or something like that yeah. you can make a phenomenally complex really well crafted beer that tastes good if your methodology is good yeah and you don't need to mess with those middle flavors but then if you want that middle flavor down the road and you're like, all right, I have this, but I want, you know, something that leads into maybe I'm going to infuse some, uh, some toffee extract for a certain flavor profile or whatever. So I yeah. want like, you know, I want that uh, kind of toffee middle to kind of bridge that gap. Maybe I'll introduce some Karamunic, you know, in, in a future recipe. Yep. But that shouldn't be your starting point. Your starting point shouldn't be 35 different malts and yeah. the toffee extract mm -hmm. and whatever else is going on. And I think the biggest takeaway from that too, you know, is you've got these, you've got these multiple factors coming into um, a beer. So if you go right off the bat and you say, well, you know, I've actually brewed with Karamunic, right? Yeah. I, I know what Karamunic tastes like. Uh, I want that flavor in this, in this beer, um, but you're really trying to dial that beer in. I mean, if it's a one-off thing, sure, but um, if you're trying to actually dial in that recipe, um, so now you've added the Karamunic, but you didn't adjust your hops. Um, you didn't adjust, you know, your, your, your water chemistry at all. Right. So there's more than one factor that actually come into play with this. And then unless you brewed that beer 
before without having that care in Munich, you don't have that baseline to work with. Yeah. Um, because the reality is, is if you're adding, say, say you go a little crazy and you throw in a pound of care in Munich, and now all of a sudden you've got a big sweet stout, <laughs> and uh, but you didn't want to make a sweet stout, you might actually have to increase, you know, your bittering hop addition, balance that out. Right. Um, so so there's there's all these factors that are coming into it, um, and you know, just kind of keeping it simple and changing one factor at a time. Um, will actually, I think, make you, make that whole learning process, you know, again, just just much much better for you. Um, so all this to say, we do have a super complex strawberry marshmallow stout coming out on our website for a kit <laughs> available to purchase. <laughs> he's he's kidding. He's kidding. <laughs> yeah, not not actually. Uh, yeah, caramel coffee marshmallow <laughs> vanilla um, uh, and uh, raspberry. Yes, yeah, raspberry stout. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is our <laughs> second topic. Um, thanks, everyone, for letting us kind of uh, banter and lecture uh, there for vent, a hot minute. Vent, yeah, I was like, I was like that was uh, <laughs> hopefully you learned something from that. So we're going to open it up to general questioning now. Um, we got about 15 minutes left or so of our live stream. And uh, so, yeah, throw your questions our way, and we will do our best to answer them. Um, uh, Steve, Ooh. thank you so much for the super chat. You guys make me a better brewer. You two rock my unzipped DNA. Uh, nice. Hey, the Gila case, bringing it back. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that. We, we always appreciate when uh, yeah. when people show us some love. I'm going to scroll through the um, chats, but if you guys posted a question earlier in the in the chat, feel free to kind of post that again just because it's hard to find all of them sometimes. Uh, comment below your favorite Moe's Tavern uh, prank call names. We've got so far Amanda Hug and Kiss, Damn it, Joe. Uh, IP Freely, Seymour Butts. Uh, Joe's making fun of my beard. I feel, I feel, <laughs> I feel sad now. You should. <laughs> uh, I am not Santa Claus yet. Working give, on it. Give me 50 years. Actually, let's be real. I'll be dead in 50 years. Uh, I don't know if you should do Simpson-themed beers. They all had jaundice. <laughs> they were very yellow people. That's true. Uh, how's the small business shutdown in Washington? Uh, been brutal in California from homebrew for life. Yeah, it is still brutal. It is, uh, it's been terrible. It's been absolutely if, if terrible. YouTube, if YouTube didn't take this video down, I would show you all of the uh, marks on my butt. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we have to make weekly trips over to uh, to Olympia now and just to get spankings. That's that's um, exactly what's going on that's, right That's now. the new mandate. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, we bend over and give the government a running start. <laughs> uh, uh, so somebody's asking about Imperial Whiteout. Uh, so Whiteout is going to be... That actually interesting to taste without the clove. Oh yeah, because that's like literally what that strain. Yeah, whiteout is. is like about the clove. Whiteout is like, yeah, pff, fennel heavy for sure. <clears throat> Doing the most is testing bonanza and sundew on session meads. Oh, that sounds delicious. Um, yeah, I think he said that he that they're both going a little bit slowly, but once he added enough nu uh, nutrient. Yeah. that sounds about right. Uh, Doing the most. If you're still watching, if you want to send us some. We'll do some trades. I'll send you some stuff. You send me some stuff. We put it on some videos. Let me know. Duh. We can make that happen. Uh, Reverend KY, buying you a beer. Hey, I appreciate that. That's like at least three times Reverend KY has bought us beer. I appreciate that. It's awesome. 
sag? What does it mean? To but seriously, if we need to sell our hand, we're furloughed. We have an um, incredibly small staff. Pamela ha is got a really good question, asking what it means to underpitch. Um, and I mean, it's it's actually exactly what it sounds like. So um, typically, uh, you have a certain uh, amount of yeast cells that you're trying to pitch uh, per the amount of sugar in your beer. Um, this kind of comes down to a calculation, which is uh, what is it? Gravity. Gravity. It's a gravity and volume, right? I was reading. I have no. I wasn't listening at all. Oh, okay. To what you're saying. Um, yeah. So it has to do with a gravity and volume. Yeah, that does sound correct. Yeah. So it has to do with the function of gravity and volume for a specific cell count. Um, typically, for what we want for most clean beers, um, what this comes down to for your you know moderate alcohol beers, say 1050 to 1060 gravity, um, it means that you're wanting to pitch right around that 200 billion cells um, to have a nice clean beer in the end. And uh, anything under that is considered under pitching. Anything over that is considered over pitching. Um, typically for loggers that we're trying to keep extremely clean, um, a lot of times you'll, you'll actually build up a starter and pitch more of these cells than that. Um, but I know some people for Belgians, for the quike strains, um, they'll actually purposely pitch you know, closer to half of that um, and, uh, or even less sometimes and actually try to produce stress on those yeasts, which ends up um, causing, and, and also you're creating actually more um, divisions throughout the fermentation process, which ultimately produces more flavor. Um, as for the kind of flavor you get, um, you're playing with fire a little bit because um, sometimes it can be good flavors, sometimes it can be um, what they like to call POF uh, over there at Omega now, which is uh, phenolic off flavors. So. Um, yeah, that was a really drawn out explanation of under pitching. <laughs> so, uh, Dirk Dugler, thank you a ton for the super chat. Doesn't look like there's anything attached in terms of a question or anything like that, but uh, I really appreciate it. So, what? If you pitch, pitch, pitch. hey, Canadian Brewing Channel, by the way, nice shout out. <laughs> I, I don't know if I have uh, I need to look up them up. I don't know if I've seen anything from Canadian Brewing Channel yet. I feel like I, we I feel like we've looked them up before. Um, um if a beer has no head retention despite carbonation, is there a hack to fix it? Um there actually is, strangely enough. Um there is a uh, thing called heading powder. Um, heading powder is specifically designed to do two things, absorb oils that can redu reduce head retention and also create a certain starch matrix that will give you head retention without impacting flavor. So heading powder is a, a good way to yep. give you some head. Uh, we got H4L, homebrew for life, uh, with a uh, question um, that um, asking about how many times you can reuse yeast. And I believe the answer to that is how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Um, ultimately, you can reuse, reuse yeast as many times as you feel comfortable <coughs> doing so. Um, with that said, um, you know, without doing cell counts uh, and having some, some serious science behind repitching and understanding you know, how much yeast you're putting into each um, batch, um, then I, you know, I'm all about throwing beer onto a yeast cake, but I wouldn't do it usually more than once or twice um, for, for usually, yeah, yeah. For, for a homebrew setup. Um, and that actually has more to do with just the fact that you're actually building up yeast, but you also have old yeast cells. You've got other weird trube in your fermenters. You're also and, uh, in the process of brewing. You're also forcing a rapid growth, rapid, rapid yep. uh, cellular re regeneration, which means so. 
that your yeast will be mutating multiple times. Yes. Um, my record, by the way, has been actually a starter of um, the German ale yeast um, that I actually kept in a flask uh, and, and made, made uh, repeated one liter starters and then actually pitched half of it. Yeah. Um, and I actually was able to do that seven times until um, I actually grew so much yeast that it blew up in my flask and I just ended up saying, well, okay, I got my money's worth out of that. That's definitely, <laughs> uh, definitely mutated and or infected by now. Uh, yeah. Uh, it wasn't that so much as just like it literally blew off and, and all of the yeast I was trying to grow was now like in a pint glass next to it. And which yeah. obviously was not sealed up. So, and that's when you start <laughs> coating your walls with it and just being like, this is going to be my house strain. <laughs> oh, coating my wall. I thought you coat your, your spouse with it. That's, that's that too. Okay, never mind. Anyway, <laughs> different. Uh, never mind. Uh, so, what is a good cheaper hop for a NEPA and a good yeast besides juice or dry hop from Imperial? Um, so, a good cheaper hop. We've talked about this last week. Is actually Columbus. Love Columbus for NEPAs. Uh, good yeast besides juice or dry hop, I would say, is House. House is probably my favorite. Uh, yes. Well, I would say it's my most consistent NEPA yeast. Um, um, Lots of talk about GMOs. GMO talk. Uh, why no love for dry yeast? Kevin's asking. Um, no, we we do we use dry yeast. Uh, we actually time, ship yeah. all of our kits out with dry yeast. We find that the viability in liquid yeast tends to be a little bit better when uh, in store uh, than dry yeast. Uh, that and honestly, we probably use it uh, mo more than anything. I think that we use liquid yeast here. Um, because ye liquid yeast has a much more finite shelf life than dry yeast. And so we just like to keep our stocks turned over. Um, even though like pretty much all of the liquid brands now, actually I think Y yeast is six months, which is kind of crazy to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I know Imperial has a four month shelf life. Um, but the reality is, is we try to keep those guys turned over. Um, within about with, two with, to three months. Yeah, within two to three months. We don't like to push that at all just because you are losing viability. So. Um, the fresher product we can have for customers, the the better off we feel and the happier the customers are. So, um, yeah, so that just helps us turn those over. Uh, ja, ja, ja. I made a pale ale using uh, WLP001, and it's fermenting all the way down to 1.002. Nine days into fermentation, and it's almost a little salty now. What's happening? That's... Uh, so uh, WLP001 will not go down to that gravity. So you've got some sort of a diastaticus infection. Uh, I, it's hard to say. I don't know what the, what the little salty comes from. That might just be the water you're using. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if water would be my first guess, but it's hard to say. Uh, oh, uh, if you are you have a water softener in your house, um, those oh. actually add salts. Yeah. Um, so or if it's a little bit full or if it's been like, you know, needs yeah. to change so, out. Um, yeah, if you, if you have like a whole house water softener that you're using, uh, look into that because that can actually have a significant impact on the water chemistry of your beer. Um, yeah, it's not sodium, but it's, uh, I want to say it's usually like... Potassium? Potassium chloride, yeah, which that could, that could be, have a weird effect. Um... Uh, are we getting caught up? I had a lot of biscuit malt to my Guinness Nigerian foreign extra style clone. So much bready goodness. Uh, yeah, an aromatic malt in a foreign extra Guinness clone would would be appropriate. Uh, but still, we like the idea of trying to to use a two malt 
method to garage, narrow things down first. Garage Brewing wants us to try some scented beers. Did you guys ever make that video? You never did, did you? We do have some scented beers. Um, and then one more time, we gotta get, we have to have Tim for that though. Uh, that's true. Tim, come here. Tim is the consumer of beers. Um, what is House? House is a uh, English strain from Imperial. Yeah, it's the Whitbread strain, same as the SO4. Or British ale from Y East, or dry English ale from White Labs. Does pressure fermentation increase the speed of yeast? Uh, I saw that too. Or is it just from the temperature increase? Uh, the temperature uh, is what's increasing the speed. The pressure is what's neutralizing the off yeah. flavors. Yeah. If anything, actually, pressure fermentations will uh, will slow it down. Slow it down. Yeah. Because it, it does put um, more pressure, more osmotic pressure on the yeast cells, so that actually slows down fermentation. Do you pronounce the I in Hornadol? I feel like that should answer that question. <laughs> Horndal. Horndal. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I just want to, like, <laughs> slow clap that. <laughs> uh, someone's been curious to try about Belma hops. Belma hops with sundew yeast. Great idea. Uh you got strawberry on strawberry on strawberry. Uh, Why not? Strawberry fields forever. For sometimes. <laughs> All right, guys. We're at 50 likes. Go ahead and get that up to 100 likes. Like we already said, Logan will butt chug a beer at 100 likes. No, no. No, I won't. No, I won't. That's Somebody already commented <laughs> that you got to do it. So uh, Look us up on RedTube for that. <laughs> uh, all right. I think that pretty much sums up the questions. I might see one more, but Peter's probably going to hop over and start closing out this live stream. Yep. Um, yeah, looking for uh, at buying a local brewery tasting room that's for sale. What size system do you recommend when going pro from homebrew? Um, what would too large or too small be? Um, yeah, so that's a really complicated one, honestly. Uh, so find your outlet. Figure out how much beer you think you're going to sell. Um, and I would say start with a system that you think you can sell, um, let's say, uh, 75 to up to 90% of the beer in-house and, and kind of go from there. Um, yeah, I think a nice happy medium for a lot of people that aren't wanting to invest a lot is somewhere in that three-barrel-ish range. Um, generally, when you get up to about 10 barrels, um, you're looking at a, a distribution scheme. Um, but uh, one barrel or two barrel um, is also really, really labor-intensive. So. Um, yeah, three to five barrels. That's what I would say um, as a general rule of thumb. Um, and what hops would you use for a Red X smash? Peter, hops for a Red X smash. Uh, Chinook and Simcoe. That's pretty much what I would say, too. Chinook and Simcoe for that one. So, well, no, no it's a smash, <laughs> not Chinook and Simcoe. I would just use Chinook, um, but Simcoe would also work very well. Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Um, all right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will see you again next week at 8 45 uh pacific standard time if you want to support the show for one hit that like button and two go to our website and check out our swag and recipe kits Where, where's candace's uh, if i'm not under quite and i have temperature control why are not ipas sweet uh sweet ipas from quike and and no temperature controls um you're probably not adding enough hops that's, uh, yeah, so if you got sweet quike, um, make sure that the, the quike's finishing. You ha usually have to add some nutrient to quike as well. And, uh, and then, hot yeah. Low mash temp. And, yeah, hot temp, low mash temp, and 
Uh, yeah, lots and lots of hops. Get get a little bit of bitterness from them. You need a little bitterness. Uh, okay. Thank you, everyone, subscribe. for tuning in. Subscribe. Swag from our website. Please support us, and we will, we will see you next week. I hope they didn't hear that. They probably heard that.